Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm guest host Shona Thompson. Going to the grocery store now seems a lot like going through airport security with gates, fences, video surveillance, and receipt checks. We'll speak with Bruce Winder, retail analyst, about how this is changing the whole experience for shoppers. A thought-provoking article in theconversation.com. It's called The World's Most Powerful Democracies Were Built on the Suffering of Others. We'll hear from the author, Shane Noreen of St. Thomas University. And a new tool in the battle against insomnia. Alan Cross, the host of the ongoing history of new music, Canada's longest-running radio documentary, and the blog, A Journal of Musical Things, will tell us what it is. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Have you noticed the upgraded security measures when you go to the grocery store? Metal fences, gates, video security. This is happening on a daily basis now. Can you see my receipt? Yes, please. See my receipt for what? Uh, For the uh, drinks, please. The anti-theft tags on meat are another new twist all at a time when grocery stores are reporting increases in profits. Uh, they are taking measures to deter theft. Here to talk more about it is Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID, among other books. Morning, Bruce. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on the program. Um, so going to pick up some groceries at the store, it's it's becoming more and more like you're going to the airport. It really is. It's becoming a little more, uh, you know, there's a lot more process in place now to try to deter thieves and unfortunately you know sort of everyone is being treated the same way um you know sort of the many are suffering because of the actions of a few but definitely you feel like you're going through airport security now sometimes yeah now in truth shoppers were on security cameras before they took more visible measures uh but they've started making sure that those the cameras that are in store that you know that you were on candid camera yeah, the key is it's almost like a scarecrow effect, right? You know, you want to you want to show uh, these processes, these 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 ways of managing, so that when thieves think about going into a store and raiding that store, shoplifting, maybe they won't because they see that retailers will check the receipt, or that things are locked up, <clears throat> or you know, as a case in Ottawa where you know you have to go through a cashier to buy a product, so it's it has a bit of a scarecrow effect. Yeah, I, I know um, certainly in grocery stores and pharmacies as well, they've been locking up uh, infant formula. Uh, for years, they've been locking up razor blades. Yeah, it's something that um, it's not it's not really a good move from a customer service standpoint and a sales standpoint because it adds a lot of cost to get the labor. You know, it requires a person to open the cabinet for consumers and consumers have to wait. And, you know, how long will they wait before they get frustrated? So it's really a Band-Aid, so to pardon the pun. You know, it's not really a long-term solution for retailers to lock up products, but I think a lot of them are just knee-jerk reacting reacting to the fact that they're seeing massive shrink rates now. Yeah, Um, but one of the things that there's been an awful lot of pushback to is the the checking out of your self-checkout receipts. People are really fed up with that. Yeah, that that that's been a big issue. Um, you've seen it. You've seen it on social media and, and other places. Is people feel like they're being accused of being a thief? And uh, you know, from what I understand, most retailers, unless you're Costco, really don't can't make you do it. You know, they don't have the legal right to do it. You can refuse it. But either way, it's making consumers really angry. They feel like, what, you don't trust me? You know, I'm trusting you with my money to buy products from you. And you're not trusting that I'm going to, you know, not steal. So it's caused some really bad uh, PR for a lot of brands as well. Yeah, and it is impacting the whole experience of going to the grocery store 
and and just going shopping. It is. It's adding potential time to your journey as a shopper. It's it's making you angry. It's really changing that experience. And, uh, you know, people might be willing to do that at Costco because you're getting really, really low prices and you paid a membership. But when you go to a basic store, you know, a non-Costco store, you know, I think people don't have the patience and people aren't used to it. That's the other thing, right? It's a new procedure. So I can see why a lot of consumers are angry about it. I can also see, though, on the retailer side, how they're trying to weed out, you know, crooks from make from stealing things from them. But again, anytime you penalize everyone for the bad actions of a few, it usually doesn't work in society. Yeah. We're speaking with Bruce Winter, who's a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During and After COVID. He's authored several books, actually. Um, Bruce, just overall, do you think that grocery stores are losing the PR battle here? Yeah, I mean, grocery stores have been sort of the poster child for what not to do from a PR standpoint on many fronts. You know, everything from the uh, the bread price fixing scandal a few years ago. And uh, supposedly there's a meat price fix price price fixing scandal that might be coming out. And you know what? Just uh, the whole inflation and greedflation and, uh, you know, it's kind of a quasi duopoly they have or monopoly or oligopoly. So this is just another issue that they have to deal with on top of already a really bad sort of PR profile in Canada right now. Yeah, well, and, and what's going on with the uh, the Metro workers strike in and around Toronto? I mean, it's 27 stores in Toronto. It's not actually impacting the Metro stores in Hamilton or London, at least not at this point, because that's a different bargaining unit. But, you know, you've got right. uh, the use of more part-timers there. There used to be a time when you could be a full-time uh, grocery store employee and, and live a pretty decent life on what you were making. Yeah, I remember those days back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, Metro announced this morning, I guess, that they've cut off their workers in Toronto from receiving benefits while they're on strike. So I guess medical or dental benefits. So it's it's really uh, adversarial. The relationship right now between workers and the big grocers is adversarial. The, and that's, that's not just grocery, that's everywhere. There's so many more labor disputes now because of inflation. And wages just haven't kept pace. You know, they have for a little while, but for 50 years, to your point, you know, if you look at the cost of living, it significantly increases where wages, you know, real wages after you adjust for inflation haven't really went up that much. So I think it's just harder for everyone to make ends meet now. And that's why you're seeing so many labor disputes and strikes. Yeah, and, and this uh, strike is actually pointing out some things that people may have been somewhat aware of, but it's really shining a spotlight on it, like the numbers of part-timers. There are more part-timers than full-time employees at grocery stores. Yeah, that's very common these days uh, versus what it used to be because retailers are looking for that flexibility and they can pay less to the part-timers and they're easy to, easier to let go and things. So it, it allows for labor flexibility for the big grocers, which equates to uh, cost savings and also able to schedule employees based on daily sales. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a very different relationship now between a grocery worker and a grocery store than it was, say, in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, just getting back to security measures for a moment, just before we wrap up here. Do you know of any other security measures that might be coming down the pike? Well, there is a, a, a comp- there is Walmart in Ottawa is piloting something right now where they've actually shut down the um, self-serve checkout and they're forcing everyone to go through cashiers again. Um, I also know that a lot of companies, like we talked about, put things under glass. Some people are hiring more sort of law, not law enforcement, but loss prevention people walking around. So retailers are trying to throw whatever they can at the problem to try to get these numbers down, the shrink numbers down. Well, Bruce, always uh, informative when you join us on The Bill Kelly Show. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst. He's also the author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID, among other books. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's that old saying, those who ignore history are destined to repeat it. And maybe in that light, our next guest has written a piece in a publication called theconversation.ca. It could be the basis of some difficult conversations. Hopefully, though, not this one. Sean Noreen is a professor of international relations and political science with St. Thomas University. The article is called The World's Most Powerful Democracies were built on the suffering of others. It is a thought-provoking article, and Sean, thank you so much for taking time to speak to us today. Oh, uh, you're more than welcome. Um, One of the starting points for your article uh, is pointing to moves, and some of them fairly recent moves by the United States on foreign policy that actually run counter to some of the founding principles of democracy. Um, Well, I guess that's true in a way, but I I try to point out in the article that... uh, what I'm talking about is Joe Biden's articulation of saying that the the conflict right now in the world is between democracy and authoritarian governments. And uh, I point out that the United States itself has a long history uh, of overthrowing and undermining democracies when it wants to, and also of supporting authoritarian governments when it's in their interest. And so uh, I don't think it's credible to argue that this is really what the what the conflict if there is a conflict, is about. And uh, I point out that I think the U.S. itself is simply putting things in these terms in order to maintain its own position in the international system. I also point out that the United States at this moment in time, and arguably, frankly, for its entire history, um, the nature and quality of American democracy is highly questionable. And uh, whether or not they're in a position to really present themselves as the exemplar, as the... uh, you know, the, the demonstration of democracy is an open question. Well, there are those who have said that some of the attacks against the United States have actually come as a backlash to its foreign policy. Um, and, and those people who have said those things have suffered for that criticism. Well, I suppose that might be true. But it's also, I think, true to say that at least some of the attacks absolutely are a result of uh, a backlash to to American foreign policy. You know, um Many people, you know, after the the September 11th attacks, many years ago now, more than 20 years ago now, many people kept referring to a book by a scientist, a political scientist named Chalmers Johnson about the notion of a blowback. And Johnson's idea was, in fact, that foreign policy has unintended consequences. When you're the biggest, most active power in the world, your foreign policy is going to have consequences. It's going to inspire some kind of pushback. Well, you know, I think they're seeing that play out on their southern border right now. The uh, the policy of supporting other countries and sending money for programs um, and then cutting all of that off, that's led to a destabilization of those countries. And that's led to the migrant problem that they're experiencing now. Uh, yes, I agree with that. And I think that's often the case uh, in these sorts of situations. Um, you can also argue, you know, that that one of the major problems facing the um, people in the Ameri- in these Latin America today is um, due, due to things like climate change and climate change. You know, um, the Western world and the United States in particular has heavily um, caused that to a large degree. 
Well, and and when we start to see more and more of um, things like the rising of the oceans, where there are going to be more countries that have less uh, footprint around the world, they have less space, they're going to be going to countries like the United States and like Canada in increasing numbers. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, climate change is something I touch on in the article at the very end, because one of my major points is simply that I think trying to divide the world between democracies and, and authoritarian regimes is a very, very counterproductive, a very destructive move that we're at this moment in time where we really face a genuinely existential threat in the form of climate change. And we need global cooperation on a scale that we've never seen before. And yet, instead of trying to pursue that, uh, Western powers, particularly the United States, are led by the United States, certainly, seem to be trying to foment this highly divisive approach to the international system. Now, I think someone would come back and say, well, you know, uh, the present situation where Russia has invaded Ukraine, that speaks to the argument that authoritarian regimes are on the march. Um, I think it's quite a bit more complicated than that. But if you put aside Russia for a moment, uh, China is the main target of what Joe Biden is saying. And China just doesn't have a record, uh, at least not over the past several decades, of trying to force its authoritarian system on other countries. And so they're really, if China is the major target of this particular propaganda approach, um, it really hasn't done anything to inspire this particular idea. Well, I think one of the, the points you're driving at is uh, a move towards more nationalism. And and we've seen a move farther to the right in European Union countries. I think Spain is one of the few exceptions uh, in their most recent election. But but we're seeing that more and more. Uh, yes. Well, the rise of right-wing populism in Europe, and, and of course, obviously, in the United States, too, and perhaps, you know, we're going to see more of it here in Canada. It's a very worrying sign. Uh, and I think there are a whole variety of reasons for this. Um it has to do with economic inequality. Um, it has to do with political instability that's followed as a result. Um, in the European case, it's also a significant backlash against immigrants and migrants trying to make it into Europe. And again, a lot of those migrants are actually people who are either fleeing from um, effects of things like climate change or they're fleeing from wars that often have been caused or exacerbated by the foreign policy of Western countries. And so we see this this sort of you know, again, as you were saying earlier, um, actions have consequences. There are there is a backlash, a result as uh, um, following from these things. Yeah, you know, with uh, actions have consequences. Getting back to uh, uh, some of the foreign policy problems, you know, people you get that nationalist feeling or sentiment in the population saying, you know, you're spending all this money on other nations and helping those people, but we've got problems here at home. Then they roll back in that money. It doesn't really seem to help the problems here at home, but now you've got this migrant problem that's going on in the U.S., and nobody seems to be talking about those programs again. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, again, I don't want to necessarily pick on the United States alone here, but the United States is spending about $1 trillion on its military this year. And that apparently is completely uncontroversial. Uh, on the other hand, um, Joe Biden's attempt to deal with climate change is going to involve about $350 billion worth of spending over 10 years. Now, that's a lot of money, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the vast amounts of money that they're spending on the military. And I think the fact that you can put so much cash into something as destructive as the military, and frankly, in many ways, useless, 
Um, and that had and that can happen without any sort of real debate whatsoever, while at the same time you debate whether or not to spend on social policy or helping mitigate the effects of climate change or environmental policy, it speaks to much deeper kinds of fundamental structural problems um, in a United States American society and maybe Western society in general. I think that's a, a point that's very well made. Sean Noreen is a professor of international relations and political science at St. Thomas University. We're talking about his article that appears in theconversation.ca. Sean, Canada has had a reputation of being, you know, kind of everybody's friend. Everybody likes us. But we are really just starting to understand what is in our history, what our democracy has been built on. And uh, some of it is not so good. Yes, well, that's sort of the second part of the article where I try to make the point that we in the Western world seem to think that other countries should be democracies like us. And we also seem to believe that it's a very simple thing to do. They just have to choose to be democracies, you know, to to create the institutions, to have free and fair votes, things like that. And what I try to point out is that, first off, Democracies cannot simply be wished into existence. It's a very difficult and complicated process. And then when we look at our own history, the history of much of the Western world is a history of extraordinary violence, like democracies that have been successful in places like Let's assume for a moment the American democracy is successful, like the United States, like Canada, like England, like Britain. they were built on genocide, slavery. In the case of the British, the amount of wealth that they extracted from their colonies in order to build up themselves and invest across the rest of Europe in order to build the rest of Europe is absolutely mind-blowing. It's staggering. And so this is the, the way in which we built our successful democracies. I mean, we have a democracy in Canada, for the most part, that is one of the envies of the world. Um, you know, we we have civil rights, we have all sorts of protections, high qualities of uh, standards of living. The question we have to ask is, who exactly paid for all of that? What did we do to make those things happen? And the simple answer is, you know, we committed cultural genocide and stole all the land from the, the, the uh, um, in, in indigenous people of Canada. And we're frankly not that bad compared to many other countries in the world that today say they are successful democracies, and then criticize everywhere else. Now, I think democracy is a good idea, and most of the world thinks that's a good idea, thinks it's a good idea, and want to have democracies like our exist in the West. But we can't pass ourselves off as a good example to follow if we really claim to care about things like human rights or the peaceful transition to democracy. That's just not what we did for the most part. No, but, you know, something else that I think we are starting to pay attention to, we're starting to learn more about, but perhaps we still need to do more um, with regards to supporting refugees, cleaning up environmental messes, uh, supplying clean drinking water for First Nations lands, and living up to our treaties. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But I mean, all of this speaks to how easy it is to have an illusion about what it is that countries like Canada actually are, as opposed to the reality. Um, And and maybe, again, maybe for Canada, you know, for most Canadians, Canada works pretty well. And then there are marginalized groups who are particularly targeted, you know, targets of discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, That isn't uncommon, right? And I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, a, a political system that works well for the majority of its people is a good system, or at least a better system. Um, but at the same time, I think we've got to be a lot more humble 
when we go around the world and we tell people how we think they should be organizing their own political systems, how we think they should be living. Because if we do that without being honest about our own history and the way in which we got where we are, then the hypocrisy is overwhelming. I also think it's counterproductive and it's actually very damaging to um, to ourselves because we aren't really seeing what's there. We aren't really honestly wrestling with the reality of how difficult it is to create a working democracy. Sean, what are you hoping that people will take from your article? What are you hoping will happen? Well, I want people to appreciate that, uh, as I said earlier, getting a democracy to work is a really complex and difficult thing. Um, We have to understand, we have to approach the rest of the world with a humble attitude that says, we can't just say to people, look, follow our lead, follow our example, look at what we've done. All you've got to do is do the same thing without being clear and honest about what exactly we really did to get to this point and who we stepped on to get there. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, yes, bringing democracy, having people be ruled by governments that respect them and are accountable to them is a good idea. But we need to be willing to accept that there is considerable complexity in this and recognize that and just simply be a lot less arrogant in how we approach the world. We have to cooperate at the international level, and we're not going to get a lot of people willing to cooperate with us when we're basically stepping all over them. Well, certainly a a thought-provoking article. And Sean, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Sean Noreen is a professor of international relations and political science with St. Thomas University. His piece in theconversation.ca is The World's Most Powerful Democracies Were Built on the Suffering of Others. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a time when this was the go-to for help in falling asleep. gently rocked in the arms of your mom while she was gently humming Brahms' lullaby. But this may be the real key to helping those who have insomnia. Music that is tuned and performed with 432 hertz. It's the focus of the latest post from Alan Cross on a Journal of Musical Things. He's also the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, Canada's longest-running radio documentary. Hi, Alan. How you doing? Good night's sleep. For a second, I thought you had fallen asleep just because <laughs> I played that. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a really interesting thing. I've always been fascinated by how music and the brain work together. We really don't have a biological need for music, yet there are parts of our brain that have evolved just to process and consume music. So this is a, another thing that I ran across. I've been following it for a little while. In fact, I wrote something for Global News uh, a few years ago, and it has to do with the way our music has been tuned. Now, If we go back into history, we eventually end up at Pythagoras in ancient Greece. And he determined that there was a very pleasing natural set of ratios that involved musical notes. So for in its very simplest form, if you have, let's say, a string and it's two feet long, 
and you pluck it, it vibrates. But if you take your fingers and divide that string into two halves by pinching it in the middle and pluck both sides, those each of those sides will be exactly twice the vibrational frequency of what it was for the two-foot piece of string. So using these mathematical ratios and principles, Plato laid out a, not Plato, I'm sorry, Pythagoras laid out a, uh, a, a all these different, well, how music should be, should sound, how, how notes came into being, how, what, what notes were notes. And, and this is the way it was for a very long time. Now, uh, the problem became being able to tune something to the same frequency if your piano was in Berlin or if your piano, piano was in New York. And in 1950-ish, there was an international standard that suggested, that actually demanded, required, that middle A on a piano keyboard be 440 hertz. I don't know why, it was just the number. There are rumors that uh, Joseph Goebbels discovered the weird sort of crowd controlling uh, properties of music tuned to 440 hertz. I don't know. You can go down that rabbit hole if you like. But since 1950 or so, we've been tuning all our pianos around the world and all our instruments as a result to middle A being 440 hertz. This is not the frequency that Pythagoras said we should be dealing with. It should be 432 hertz because that is the natural frequency of what would be middle A. So what we're hearing right which would, today for us, 432 hertz is a, like an A flat, but it is actually the more natural version of A. Does that help? I, I, Pythagoras did this to us? Yes. He is the reason why I don't sleep at night? Well, maybe, yes. So, uh, no, he, actually, if you, we'd listened to Pythagoras, we'd be able to sleep much better because uh, there has been a series of, of tests with music that has been tuned where middle A is 432 hertz. And you can do that now with the uh, music software that we have without making the music sounds you know, glitchy or anything like that. And they found that at 432 hertz, everything is much more calming. It's not nearly as distressing. It's not nearly as jarring as the music we've tuned to 440 hertz. And uh, if you go on YouTube, for example, you'll find all kinds of fall asleep playlists where the music is tuned so that 432 hertz is middle A. And oddly enough, I, I tried this the other day. I, was, I had some writer's block and I was trying to get it through a column and it wasn't working. So I put this on in the background and um, I don't know whether it was confirmation bias or, or what, but uh, I found myself getting into a very calm groove and I managed to hit my deadline, which uh, I'm very grateful for. That's, that is interesting. I mean, there is a, a real link between music and emotion that it can calm you down, but it can kind of, you know, bring you up. As well, I, I was thinking um, when you were talking about that, remember one time I was coming south from up north, I was on the 400, not driving. Uh, the driver, and as we all know, driver picks the tunes. That's just a standard. Um, but we were coming into an ice storm, and he was playing Metallica. It did not make me feel better about the drive. 
<laughs> no, I, no, music is is a, is a very powerful motivator. Bring you up, takes you down, um, and all sorts of different things. But but what's what's again? We go back to the four hundred thirty two hertz thing. Uh, if you go online, you'll find songs by Coldplay and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and any number of other bands uh, who have had their songs detuned to from 440 tuning to 400, 432 tuning. And again, I don't know if it's confirmation bias or I'm listening for something that I that's not there, but I swear to God that the somehow the versions at 432 feel better i can't describe it but i i genuinely feel that the songs are more appealing just by reducing its central frequency by eight vibrations per second wow that's have there been studies on this yeah they're you know they're working on some stuff right now uh, especially when it comes to insomnia um it, it just there's something about flat notes and and we have been conditioned uh so that 432 is, like I said, an A-flat-ish. Something about flat notes being less jarring on the psyche. And if we detune everything by this, you know, this this, this simple amount, um, everything becomes a little bit more clear. This is actually known as Verdi's A. Verdi, the uh, opera composer, was the one big, big, big um, proponent of this. And whenever he had an orchestra or a performance, he would make sure that everything was tuned off middle A at 432 hertz. And and uh, people have been following his lead from there on and until we get to the 1950s and this weird standardization thing, which, like I say, may or may not have been a Nazi plot. <laughs> well, believe me, when you're <laughs> feeling insomnia in the middle of the night, you're very, very willing to blame the Nazis or anybody for it. Uh, anybody, yes, yeah. I know, Absolutely. <laughs> Now, I also noticed that uh, the the music that I played that is tuned to uh, 432 hertz, that is from a selection, a link that you have on this uh, blog post, on your blog, um, and it is 10 hours long. Uh-huh. So, you know, if, if the thinking is you put this on on your bedside and just let it run low volume, and uh, it will apparently lull you to sleep better than any other lullaby. Now, no drugs, no side effects, no nothing. It just seems to, for some people who claim chronic insomnia, uh, that it works brilliantly. But, you know, uh, we're speaking with Alan Cross, who's not only the host of the ongoing history of new music, but also a journal of musical things. And this is where uh, he has the posts about um, all of the different retuning that he's been talking about. Um, I- I'm wondering, you know, you said it calmed you down. And helped you, you know, get to a deadline, maybe anecdotal, maybe confirmation bias. Jury's still out on that. But have you tried this when you've had trouble sleeping? No. Um, I, I'm so exhausted lately that I, I, I haven't had an opportunity because I close my eyes and boom, I'm out. But uh, I'll tell you when it would work for me is uh, Sunday nights into Monday. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. You have those uh, Sunday scaries where it's like, oh, God, what what week, what, what is this week going to break, uh, bring for us? So uh, next time I run into that, maybe it'll be, uh, it'll be Monday into Tuesday after the long weekend. Um, I've got a little uh, Google thing by my bed, and I can just call up this on YouTube. And uh, let's, let's see what uh, me and the wife and the dog think. 
Well, my doctor calls it work week insomnia because it's so common for people to have this. But for me, it's not, sometimes it's not just trying to get to sleep. It is staying asleep. That's the real problem. Yeah. I wonder if this would work for staying asleep. I don't know. Uh, Like I say, uh, research and investigations continue. This is happening uh, in, uh, I think it was in, in the UK, University of Wales, that I saw this, but it, it's 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 certainly worth looking at. You know, if, if music can help you get a, a deeper, better, more restful sleep, you know, you don't want to necessarily have to take any sort of drugs to, to make that happen. This is totally natural. And in keeping with the actual natural tunings of your body. So how can that be a bad thing? Hey, I'm willing to give it a try and we'll check in with you. Maybe that will be a blog post in the future for you. I, you know, it might be because this, this is worth experimenting. If you want to find out more about this and listen to the different pieces of music that have been retuned, it's all available on Alan's web post, A Journal of Musical Things. He's also the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Alan, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. And hopefully we'll all get a better night's sleep. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.